This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today I'm having a roundtable discussion with several guests. Dr. Barbara Maloney, professor of history in the Department of History at Santa Clara University. Dr. Sabina Frustuk, professor of modern Japanese cultural studies in the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultural Studies and director of the East Asia Center at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Dr. Hilary Maxson in the Department of History at University of Oregon. Thank you all so much for being here. It's great to have you all here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is the first time I've done this more roundtable style podcast. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with all of you at the same time uh, because you've all published so widely on issues related to women and gender and children. So I was hoping to talk about today is how does the Meiji Restoration impact women in Japan, gender in Japan, and especially children in Japan? Well, all of us tend to work in the 20th century, but all of us have dipped of necessity into the Meiji period. I've actually even written an article that is exclusively in the Meiji period as a way of trying to get into some of the issues of citizenship that I'm interested in in the 20th century. But I think the Meiji period is absolutely critical when we think about gender because the major dividing lines, social dividing lines, as opposed to political, which tended to be vertical dividing lines, prior to 1868, or actually prior to the 1870s, were horizontal lines between the various status groups within Japan. And one of the things that you see happening in the Meiji period is a development that happened in the West as well during the 18th and 19th century, and that is the strengthening of the gender divide. And so you see that become a major cleavage in society during the Meiji period. So when you think about gender, you cannot ignore what was going on during the Meiji period, in my view. Yeah, and I uh, totally agree with Barbara. One um, thing that I would add from my perspective is that the Meiji period, of course, viewed from a gender perspective, is not just, when we think gender, it's not only about women. And so I think in one way that the Meiji period is hugely influential is precisely for formations of modern masculinity. And so I understand that historians tend to underplay certain key uh, moments at this particular moment in our writing of the history of modern Japan. But I think one should not forget that some of these key moments have had enormous impact. In my own work, the Meiji Restoration and particularly the Meiji period, of course, is responsible for the foundation of a number of modern institutions that had a huge impact on gender relations in Japan, one being the military, mandatory schooling, all kinds of institutions that reconfigure society in particular ways. And of course, the impact is not immediate, but it has, the military, for instance, has enormous impact far beyond the boundaries of barracks and has symbolic impact that I think one cannot underestimate. I think that's a very, very good point, and it's one that I see you bring out very much in your co-edited work in a very excellent way. So I'm very happy to see masculinity as well as femininity in our discourse about gender. So often we think it's just women, and clearly it's not. And perhaps in the Meiji period, there was more emphasis being put on the construction of manhood than there was on womanhood. 
And one of the narratives of the Meiji period, referring specifically to women, is this idea of diosai kembo, right? And this mm-hmm. idea that it's the good wife, wise mother, that's a construct of the Meiji period. So what would be the male equivalent of that, talking about constructions of male masculinity during the Meiji period? Well, I think the the issues that Sabina brought up, uh, particularly in the military and through the school system, but the military in particular, because there was so much emphasis not only on the perfect male body and the creation of the public health system, because they wanted to have healthy, strong soldiers and so forth, and the connection between the strong soldiers and the building of a state that was a militarily powerful state, the connection to imperialism, some of the key issues of the of the uh, 20th century, and when we talk about imperialism, we begin to talk about the impact on women, and not just uh, men, but women in colonies and uh, especially such issues as the comfort women during World War II. Um, So masculinity means a great deal. So um, there's a lot going on there. I'll just chime in here a little bit to talk about my work on martial motherhood. And I do think a part of constructing masculinity, and even though my work tends to focus on mothers having to sacrifice their sons for war efforts in Japan, there's also this idea that sons are also supposed to be sacrificing their lives for the Japanese military, especially in the context of Fukoku Kyohei. So I think that there is this idea that that they are being constructed together, this idea of motherhood, a mother being willing to sacrifice her son, but also the sons being raised to sacrifice their lives. And of course, that story becomes even more complicated when you bring children into the picture. Because in the modern period, and and I think that's very much also a result of the Meiji era, what constitutes childhood becomes reorganized in terms of age groups. But even into the 20th century, when people wrote and spoke about children, they could mean anybody up to the age of 20 or so. Everybody could be referred to as child. And the gendering of childhood then becomes primarily a project that targets children roughly post the age of 12 or so. And it's not something that is really promoted for younger children, which of course opens up the younger child to a whole lot of political maneuvering during the modern period and the war. So when we're talking about the ideas of motherhood and childhood and the relationship between children and the family, the wives and the family, do we see big transitions from the Tokugawa period into the Meiji period and then from the Meiji period into the Taisho or wartime periods? Well, I think Sabina's probably the best expert on this, but I'll just throw in uh, the amount that I know about uh, about this subject, and that is, it seems to me that feminists played a very large role, especially in the motherhood protection debate uh, during the year, the late years of World War One. Um, and you have people like Hiratsuka Daicho talking about the connection between the uh, being a mother and service to the nation, and therefore women deserving the right to vote, which is very similar to some of the discourse you hear in the middle of the 19th century in Western countries as well. So a connection between motherhood and political rights is made at that time. You would not have heard that in the 19th century. and In fact, you wouldn't even hear it with 1890s women's movements, which were looking at different kinds of ways to empower women within the family, but not demanding political rights based on motherhood. So that is my my view of that. Would you... Um, 
Oh, yes, absolutely. I, I'm amused by the question because in my conversations over the years with uh, experts of what I, from my perspective, refer to as pre-modern Japanese history, um, they always tend to unfold in, uh, in the following manner. The modernists tend to uh, overemphasize the innovations of the modern period, uh, Meiji Restoration and after, and the Edo historians and early historians of earlier periods uh, always tell us, no, 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 this, we had this early on, and we had the, the sort of roots of this at some other moment. Um, I'm very, very um, impressed with an article that Vera Mackey wrote about the periodization of the modern, pre. I, I think she begins somewhere in late Edo, uh, into the 20th century, where she essentially suggests that depending on what kind of individual, whether we talk about men or women, whether we talk in class terms and so on and so forth, who we target, the periodization must necessarily look very differently. And so I think that's a very good way to look at when are the breaking points, when are the important historical moments, because it depends on what do you envision as the driving community or the driving group of people. That said, another issue that I always try to keep in mind is when do things change in terms of legal changes, in terms of institutional changes, in terms of changes that we can now pin down to a particular date, and when do these changes have a real impact on how people live their lives and how they think about living their lives? When you think about, I mean, especially when you think about the middle-class family, for instance, right? We have, in the 1920s, an enormous explosion of media and discourse about the middle-class family at a time when middle-class families probably constituted about 15% or so of the Japanese population. And so uh, it's always important to also complicate the question of when do things change. If I could just jump in too, uh, um, to talk about when things change. We have 2020 historical hindsight, and so even we modernists do tend to see 1868 as not a firm barrier. Uh, so we see continuities and discontinuities. But the women in the 1890s, a tiny handful of women who were involved in things like the Japanese WCTU and other women's organizations that were agitating for greater rights within the family, saw the Tokugawa as the evil past. And so anytime people are trying to make change, their immediate past is, of course, the problem because they're trying to change what went on from the immediate past. Today, we would recognize the continuities, and in fact, some of the Tokugawa era historians, the early modern historians, would say that things were, in some senses, quote unquote, better than they would ultimately be after the Japanese state created gender as a hard and fast dividing line, which does only happen um, after the Meiji Restoration. It's exactly the point that Marcia Yonamoto makes in her, in her yes. new book, is looking at... It's a wonderful <laughs> book. Everyone should read it. <laughs> <laughs> So is there 
truth to the dual side Kembo, or, or, or is this mainly a construct for middle class women that ignores how life courses were different for women at different classes? I was thinking also of Kathleen Uno's book. Yes, yes. absolutely. Uh, yeah. We're talking about how the position of women within the family changes from Tokugawa into Meiji. Now you get this idea of communal raising of the children, and then the wife is expected to work alongside the husband. But then in the Meiji period, it's this idea of women solely as mothers for children. Or later than that. I think the idea of women solely as mothers for children actually is more into either the late Meiji period or into the early Taisho period. So fathers still play a very important role. And certainly legally, getting to a point that Sabina made, legally, the father in the family, should there be divorce, had the right to children. So the father's role is also a very important one. So there are other points of view that also go back to the late Tokugawa period and talk about the fact that notions of uh, good wives, especially good wives, uh, perhaps not so much wise mothers, but good wives, very important in the Tokugawa period, that a woman played a very important economic role in her family, and that's the good wife. Very similar to the notion of good wife in, in uh, Anglo-American um, discourse as well. I wanted to make another point that I think complicates our attempt to see continuities and discontinuities in the right kind of uh, balance, and that is the source situation is dramatically different uh, for many topics the further back we go in history. And so the kinds of firm claims we can make about the Meiji period, and particularly the 20th centuries, as a 20th century it, are often much more complicated in earlier periods. And so I've just edited a volume on child's play with Anne Walthall uh, in which we have about 12 authors uh, talk about multi-sensory histories of children and childhood. And of course, there's this modern notion of childhood, that modern childhood is substantially different and so on and so forth. And we've tried to go into earlier periods and see, is that actually the case? How do people write about childhood? What kind of emotional uh, apparatus come into speaking and writing about childhood? And we've found a very diverse array of different approaches to children and childhood. But one of the main findings was that there's simply very little material to work with and almost none that survives from children themselves. So to add to this conversation, I also do believe in the Meiji period that Ryosai Kenbo in and of itself has a lot of conflicting images about womanhood and that there are a lot of different dialogues on womanhood that we can parse out that include a lot of mixed messages about ideally what women are supposed to be doing and that as more and more women begin discussing motherhood and womanhood themselves that this picture even becomes a bit more complicated. I would like to add to that a little bit because you men mentioned what women are supposed to be doing and I think that's a very important thing to parse out because what one is supposed to be doing gets reified in law and and other dominant sources like that. But is that really what people are doing? And that is kind of related to your question or your issue about the availability of sources and materials. Uh, we know what law and people who were writing uh, philosophically said, but is that how people really lived? And that really does come down to one of the great questions for uh, historians, especially those who call themselves social historians. How do you get at society? Uh, so that is something that is particularly difficult, I think, with gender and especially with children who don't often write on their own behalf. Also, 
a good percentage of women are still living in rural Japan in the countryside during the Meiji period. So one thing that I've been exploring recently is labor and the home and what women's lives look like. And for one example, the kamado, the hearth in the Japanese kitchen, was not renovated until the post-war period. So the intense amount of labor that women are carrying out in the countryside and the intensity and even the, the way it affected their bodies is still not changing all that much in many ways um, in the countryside. And especially to think that it would, there's also a class issue here too, because the Diosai Kembo ideology, which in many cases gets codified in laws written by men and mm -hmm. is talked about in political treatises that are again written by men, probably didn't come close to representing the actual lives of most women who lived in the countryside, as Hillary said, were farming tea or pursuing other kinds of agricultural activities. And for them, probably there wasn't much change from the Tokugawa period. Maybe the, the family relations still work the same way. The one thing that I, could, I think is kind of a change, but it's also in some other ways not a change, is the migration of a huge number of rural daughters to the textile mills right. in the Meiji period mm -hmm. uh, and into the early 20th century as well. And they are children. Many of them are 12, 14 years old um, at the beginning. So that is kind of a change because they're no longer living within the family. But they can neither be ryosai nor kembo. First of all, they're not going to be wise mothers because they're too young to be mothers. And they certainly aren't going to be very well educated if they had to go into the textile mills uh, immediately after fourth or fifth grade. And good wives, well, um, it's hard to know if that particular construct would ever fit basically blue-collar, working-class women. Most of them didn't go back to the countryside. Most of them stayed in the cities after working in the textile mills. But they, then they were working-class wives. So that's very different from Diosai Kembo. activity in my class, there's uh, the Ochanomizu Daigaku, which started as the Tokyo Jose Gijuku. Right? I think it was Gijuku. Uh, they've, they've digitized all of the class photos of the women, you know, going all the way back to the earliest years. And so I was reading this article that looks at those photos and talks about the, the clothing that the women are wearing in the photos. And these are the class photos. In some cases, they would be kind of ceremonial dresses, you know, the equivalent of you know, you have your graduation dress, you wear your, your, your nice kimono or something like that. But then the other ones were the school uniforms. Were they hakama at the beginning? Because I would yeah. say most, yeah. most uh, uh, school girls until about maybe 1912 yeah. or so wore hakama. And so then what I do in class is, is I take photos from different decades. Mm -hmm. And purposely I find ones that, well, I, I think the students expect, you know, there to be this kind of progression in clothing from Hakama to more Western style. Or schoolgirl, I mean, school, sailor school girl, yeah, yeah, exactly, sailor suits. Exactly. <laughs> or, and in fact, these ones are, in the, in the early 80s, it gets very Victorian. Oh, yeah. And so then I ask them to, I don't tell them anything about the context or anything about what's going on in the 1880s in Japan. I just say, put these into order in which you think that they're taken. And of course, you know, it starts with the most, you know, Japanese looking and then get slightly more Victorian as we go. And I, it's always fun to say, well, actually, 
it's the most westernized, most Victorian in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And then especially from the mid 80s and into the mid 90s, then there's kind of this return to more traditional Japanese styles. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, we use this to, to illustrate that the ideas of women's place in, in the nation state are also evolving quite a lot. Notions of what women's role in the nation state, by the way, is a new word, kokka, which means country, family, so character. So we here we have the gendering of the notion of the nation state happening when that neologism was created in the Meiji period. But ro- notions of women's roles in that new kokka uh, were in flux until about 1890. And when you get up to the Constitution and you get the, the Article 5 and all that, which limits women's political representation, there are all sorts of experimentations. There's a lot of, at least at the, among the very elite, there is reading of John Stuart Mill and notions about uh, what... Uh, an ideal role for men and women in society should be, which, by the way, wasn't... He was advocating. It doesn't mean it existed in England, but he was advocating it or anywhere else. But things were in flux. And you have people like Kishida Toshiko and others who are advocating for rights for women. But you don't have as much of that in the same way after 1890 because they're working with a, a state. And the state was not truly in existence till about 1890. And once you're working with the state, you have to chip away at the corners, chip away at the edges, trying in some way to make some changes, rather than trying to be present at the creation on the ground level. And the, the ground level was then created by 1890. So there was no going back from there. You just had to try to get rid of it. <laughs> I think the history of dress and clothes in particular is one of the dramatically understudied I have one article. Oh, I'm glad to learn that. 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 I'm glad to learn women's dress uh, changes dramatically several times, right? And you have then, even around the time of the Sino-Japanese War, uh, girls and boys still being dressed very similarly. And then further on into the century, you have specifically prescribed women's dress. And then you have girls precisely of schools like Ochanomizu in something that resembles a military uniform in military kind of training and so on. So I think there's a lot to be learned from the history of clothes. I don't want to fall into the trap when talking about pre-war women. It's always Ryosai Kenbo in the Meiji period and Moga in the Taisho period. Yeah, no, that would be a trap. (laughs) But this is one of the most contested topics, right? Well, if you look at the way... Women who are advocating for change, especially suffragists who are truly advocating for citizenship in a or participation in an estate, um, and you look at pictures of them in the 1920s, the Moga, height of the Moga era, you'll find that only a handful of them will be even right. dressing in Western clothes, right. and they aren't necessarily the height of fashion. You'll have Ichikafusai, for example, who may be. It's sometimes wearing something fashionable, but other times wearing something closer to men's clothing with a tie and and so forth. And all the other women are, for the most part, wearing Japanese clothes. So you cannot make a direct connection between Western clothes and women's power or anything like that. But clothes do 
means something. One of the points that I made in this one article that I wrote was that in the Meiji period, there were really only two types of women who wore Western clothes. Women at the very top, like the Empress who was, and, and people who were trying to impress the Westerners. And to some extent, not exclusively, but women in um, the textile mills. So either they were wearing Japanese clothes and had to tie their sleeves up so they wouldn't get caught in the machinery, or they wore Western clothes with tight sleeves. So you have the vast middle of the 80-90% of the population not wearing Western styles during that time period. And they didn't think of themselves necessarily as being um, not with it in terms of fashion. And it's Konwajiro's uh, thing where he says only one mm -hmm. percent of the women in Ginza were actually wearing. Right, we're wearing clothes. Moga style right. clothing. Yeah, I, and I, looking at pictures, his numbers are probably a little low. I would suspect that they may have been more like five percent. So <laughs> there are a few more on the street. So we could say the 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 modern girl of Japan. It wasn't just the Moga that was kind of blown out of proportion in the press, but maybe all of the women who were participating in new industries, bus girls, elevator girls, shopkeepers. Were they militant, as Miriam Silverberg called them? Some of them really were. And, and some were not at all. Some were not if at all. You, if you think about in urban environments, right, what kind of new professions could women pursue, including women who had no interest in ever becoming a Josak Kimball or becoming, a, you know, having a family and so on and so forth, teachers, nurses, all of these women we don't normally associate with the modern girl. But they were fiercely independent. They, these were new professions for women. Obviously, earlier versions of what would then be in the 20th century a nurse existed in earlier periods. But the nurse was one of the very modern professions that, by the way, also often these women said, this is the closest I could get to being a soldier. Yeah. I could be a nurse and then be posted to the front lines somewhere. Um, and there are fabulous records of uh, these young women who speak exactly in these terms about becoming a nurse. Serving and the nation in that exactly, way. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And, and even trying to cheat on their medical exams mm -hmm. so they would be deployed or try to uh, envision themselves as the, the, the second best thing to being a soldier. And then disastrously during World War II, we actually have cases like that, like the Himeyuri Nurse Corps. Precisely, or, uh, yes. If we're looking at the transition from the Meiji to the Taisho period, it's also not the case that all women agree about what the future of womanhood looks like, what women's liberation looks like, or what feminism looks like. If we look at the early 1900s, we're seeing the emergence of socialist women, we're seeing the emergence of the, the Seito women in the 1910s, and then going into the New Women's Association, we have a good number of feminists who do not all agree about what women's Emancipation. In fact, or none of them seem to agree yes. with each other. <laughs> so we look at Hiratsukuraicho or right. Yamakawa Kikue. Um, there's, uh, so I think that one of the newest approaches in the field is Japanese feminisms. Z yeah, exactly. Well. Feminisms. The idea that there's a lot of ideas and that Moga too fit in this landscape. Uh, That's very well put to talk about the landscape, a much larger way of looking at womanhood and women, gender, so we shouldn't even say that, womanhood, but gender, um, in this time period. You have so, many, so much diversity in feminist movements, plural, and ways of, of relating to one's life, one's individuality. That's another term maybe we should uh, problematize a little bit because that's not a term that's used prior to the last part of the Meiji period, um, in my view. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a 
a landscape. And it's, it's, I think that's very well put. I'm going to steal your turn, if I may. <laughs> so in your classrooms, when you're talking about Japanese feminisms, and the Meiji period or the Taisho period or, or just women in Japan in general? What are some of the, the topics, themes, approaches that you take to teach to your students? So I have taught for almost 20 years now, every year, a class that's called Representations of Sexuality in Modern Japan. And um, over the years, the student population has changed a little bit. But I, I suspect that a lot of them come to the course thinking this is about the history of women and the women and, and the history of gender as it applies to women. And one of the first things I do is say, modern history of gender begins with the male body, uh, because I suggest the male body is discursively envisioned as a miniature version of the nation state in nation building in the nation build, building period. And so that's my entry into the field and and then of course we'll talk about uh, women and and gender as it pertains to women one of the most popular topics in the course is gender ambivalence and transgendering that of course has a long history in japan as well well i go back to the early modern period in my modern course and um, so issues of transgendering do come up very obviously in in that time period. My course is called Gender and Sexuality, and uh, so I do a lot of gender in addition to sexuality because I'm not sure if I get a whole classroom of people only talking about sexuality at my institution, but I should try it. And uh, I... I don't jump in talking about the male or the masculine body first, but you've given me some very interest and very interesting way to think about it because I have been talking more about the feminine body and and ideas as well as um, as embodiment in my in my course. So um, this is a, I think talking about the masculine body would be very helpful. Although it is also true that if you wanted to start at the earl at the modern period as opposed to the early modern period, one of the first things that's talked about even prior to the Meiji Restoration are um, aspects that have to do with the feminine body and illness, um, especially sexually transmitted diseases as uh, ships were coming into Japanese harbors um, and how to deal with that particular body. So um, either way is good, but I really like the idea of thinking about the masculine body as the embodiment of the modernizing of the state. And so the state is written upon the masculine body. And so then what do you do with the woman? I mean, she's kind of out there then. I mean, it's kind of, is she an appendage or, or what? I mean, I'm just, I'm asking you the question. Oh, no, no. Like, but, but your approach uh, is really fascinating as well and is probably one much more successful one to cross over and to cross the, the Meiji divide, right? right? But, because these diseases are around and they affect women in right. particular ways. Um but I'm, I'm more of a person who looks at institutions um, and often prioritizes institutions. And so, of course, the Meiji state 
puts in two laws that are important, I think, in both in 1872. One is mandatory military okay. service and the other is mandatory elementary education. Mm-hmm. And of course, as many people will point out, that that didn't mean that everybody went into the military and didn't mean that everybody attended uh, elementary school. But the law of mandatory military service installs a whole new set of criteria what, for what a functional modern man is supposed to be like. And that's quantifiable and is quantified by Bayer, the military medical mm-hmm. exam. And so that's a, that's a good starting point for me. But of course, it's only one. one. I think one can unsettle any of these key moments in many ways. And that's what we try to do, I think, in, in the classroom. unsettling these moments of divide, I think another one that we haven't talked about yet is this divide of 1945. Women get the vote in 1946. So we would think, well, this would this is a, a major change. So is there continuities spanning this divide? Absolutely. If you're looking at the, the, the kinds of people that I tend to be looking at in, in most of my research are people who are making are advocating policy, so feminists who are advocating policy. And for such a long time, we kind of fell into what I would call the dark valley trap, that things were moving in a nice direction, and Taisho democracy, boom, they go haywire for 15 years, and then you come out, and things are moving in a nice direction again. I tend to see a tremendous amount of continuity, even though some of the things that they're saying during the war may not sound the same as what they were saying before, but the, but the fundamental continuity is that they're all trying to belong, trying to belong to a nation, trying to belong to the state, and how you do that in the context of, of the political system that may be existing at a particular time doesn't change. And so I, I see the same figures emerging. You have people who are involved during the war. They become the heads of, of major national organizations after the war. Um, And so I wouldn't say, 45 is a big change. Yeah, Japan lost the war and that was the end. You're the one that should be talking about this, but you probably know 30 times more than I do. But it's the end of the formal imperialist military state. Am I wrong? No, I do. Oh, no, okay. I thought I might be. I was on a, talking to, in front of somebody who does work on the military. I'm afraid of stepping in that, in that direction. But that is... A change. It doesn't mean that imperialism in different forms does, uh, ends. It doesn't mean that Japan doesn't have a military because it does. Um, it's just a, a different view that Japan has of its role as a nation in the larger community. That's not the right word, but the larger grouping of nations. And uh, so that seems to be a change, and people have to to deal with that particular issue, at least during the time that Japan is desperately poor and recently defeated. So there is a break, but there isn't. I mean, that, that's one of the, it's like the, like, like 1868. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's important changes. You don't have a shogun anymore. You don't have, um, you don't have daimyo, which I think is more important than getting rid of the shogun, getting rid of the, the that kind of vertical uh, organization of, of the, of the countryside and the horizontal organization based upon status groups you, and, and those kinds of things. But there's tremendous continuity. So I think you see continuities and discontinuities over 40, 1945 also. 
I think from the perspective of teaching, it is so important for us to hit on a lot of the points that we've already mentioned in this podcast, the idea that women were very much political when they did not have full political rights. So it's not the case that in 1946, the occupation bestows or gives Japanese women the gift of political rights. They were very much political in their own rights prior to 1946. Um, and they actually continue on a lot of forms of political activism that they had already been doing in the pre-war. So one aspect of this that I've been looking into is Okumumeo, who was very much involved in consumer organizations in the 1920s She's one and the people 1930s. was referring to. Yes, yeah. and that she, um, even though she's elected to the Diet in the post-war, and so voting becomes another aspect of this political landscape, if we use landscape again for women, um, that she continues and... Japanese women continue consumer activism, so boycotts, canvassing, door-to-door -door marches. So they continue these types of activism that they've already been involved in significantly in the, the pre-war And motherhood, yes. oh, an issue you have worked yes. extensively on, yes. too. Yeah. Yes. I'm a little bit more ambivalent about how to exactly evaluate 1945 and the end of the war. I think it's a huge break. People do not stop talking about their war experience. And in the, in the Japanese context, in Asia, the legacy of the Asia-Pacific War is still with us. And I think it's not going to go away very soon. It's not a thing that is solved, uh, or it can be solved. It ho hopefully will eventually be addressed in more productive ways than it's uh, currently done under the Abe administration. But uh, having said that, there are, depending on uh, from what angle you look at various phenomena, uh, there are enormous continuities as well. Particularly in when, in, in, from my own work, I'm thinking of uh, configurations of uh, family, for instance, or ideals of uh, family life, uh, of what the child, what the role of the child is for the future of Japan. Uh, that's one of the things that I find really fascinating, that uh, images of children uh, during the wartime and earlier were used to justify all kinds of things because they are supposedly done for these children's future. And that continues into the post-war period. War over, again, it's about the children. Now we need to teach them pacifism and become right. good people in a pacifist kind of frame. So I think one has both, and, and, but the dimensions are different, I think. For that war to end, that was an enormous break, I think. One, one should not overlook that. Yeah. And so during the war, it's the, the children have to be raised to be good soldiers. After the, after the war, it's they have to be raised to be good economic warriors. Well, it's not no, quite no, that no. simple. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm okay. no, please. Um, so during the war, uh, the, the story you just hinted at, that uh, children are raised to become good soldiers, boys in particular, girls to be good um, girls and then uh, women at the home front. But there's another layer there that I think is very interesting, and that is for children, the future is already there. Children already stand for peace. Children are encouraged to become friends with the children in the colonies. Mm. And so it's not just the straightforward propaganda thing where all a big uh, greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. It's always, children always hint at the future when there will be peace. And so it's this very contradictory 
use of children as both future soldiers and war makers, but also as what comes after. And what comes after, I think, in a lot of the discourse in the 1950s was peace discourse, and Japan is trying to reintegrate itself into a community of nations in which it had not been for some time. So the children would then be the hope for that future. Uh, another thing that I think um, uh, Sabina will probably have the answer to this question um, that I have, and that is... Um, how quickly did the notion that all children must at least graduate from high school and then hopefully some go on to uh, further education come into effect? Because before the war, that was not the case. The, the, it wasn't just that, that kids didn't go beyond fourth or sixth uh, grade because they couldn't afford to do that and their families needed them to work, but also the sense was that they could get work, and that's what they should be doing as a member of the Japanese state. This was before the war. And after the war, is a very different notion. You said they become economic warriors. I was thinking, no, they're also supposed to be for this new globalized view of Japan's position in the world. So that's why, and I thought, well, you can only do that if you're highly educated. That's why I wanted. I was going to get around to say, well, the kids... But then the, the role of the mother, I think, is also, there's continuity there. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, even the Japanese wartime propaganda is so focused on Japanese women. Until about 1943, okay. as I will mention this afternoon. Okay. But it's focused on women. But instead of being, even somebody like Ichika Fusai, who never talked very much about mothers until she was forced to do it because mm -hmm. she never was a mother herself either. In 1943, instead of saying mothers should be dutifully raising their children for the empire, she says, she calls that selfish. And there are other feminists, Okumumeo and people as well, um, who say that that view of motherhood is a selfish view. Mothers should be working for the state and their children are, should not be important. The family shouldn't be first, the nation should be first. Well, I was thinking of the, the Kurosawa film, The Most Beautiful, where it's yeah. all about the women in, in, the, in the factories. Mm -hmm. But then in the post-war, women are again put in the, in the forefront of mm -hmm. the GHQ propaganda. Mm -hmm. and, and I was reminded of Mourning for the Osone family, where you're talking about the Dark Valley, now we can get back on the right track. The end of that film is just the most transparent. Yeah, no. the, the sun gets left out of jail, and they're like, oh, we can get started on our good on our good work again. It's a new morning for the Osone family. Yeah. It's a new morning for Japan. It's a new morning for Japan, yeah. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research, and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.